If you can take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10, as we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning, and aren't you thankful for the grace of Christ? Pray that you are. Let's read this Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13, in a sermon entitled, The Kingdom Belongs to the Kids. This is God's word for us this morning. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not enter, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. God, we thank you for your word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And so as we've come to study it, Lord, I pray that you can speak to your people and build us up this morning in it. And God, impress us with your grace. In your name, Jesus. Amen. When I was a kid, so if you didn't know this about me, I, I am or I am an only child. And some of you guys might think I can tell. I don't know. But, I, I, you know, I'm an only child, and Christmas was always, for the only child, a huge deal. Uh, I don't know if it's, do you think it's too early for Christmas music yet? No, yes. I saw a Christmas tree yesterday. It feels like it's, and we have all these boxes, right, of course. Anyway, Christmas, I want you to think about six-year-old Pastor Matt on a Christmas morning where my parents always went all out for Christmas. It was um, presents everywhere. I loved it. Super joyful time for me at Christmas. But I want you to think about six-year-old Pastor Matt in the living room at Christmas surrounded by presents, and I want you to ask, what did he do to deserve that? Now, of course, you have this thing going around Christmas. If you're good, but I, I feel like everybody gets the same amount of presents, whether they're good or not. Um, so what did I do to deserve that? I want you to ask. And what we'll see today in the text, I believe, is that salvation is not achieved by successful grown-ups, but instead it's given to humble, needy kids. Salvation is not achieved by successful grown-ups, but it's given to humble and needy kids. We've got four verses this morning with four points. We'll see kids brought to Jesus in verse 13, kids given access to Jesus in verse 14, kids used as an example by Jesus in verse 15, and kids in the arms of Jesus in verse 16. First we see verse 13 where it says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuke them kids brought to Jesus. Point one, this story begins with the parents truly having a wonderful idea. Let's bring our kids to Jesus. That's a great idea, is it not? Let's bring our kids to Jesus. In the story, we don't see a specific burden. There is not the burden of leprosy or paralysis or demonic possession. No, just the burden of parenthood, right? Um, these parents want to see their kids blessed by Jesus. And let me say that these kids, I mean, these parents are a really good example for us to follow. 
they wanted their kids to be blessed by Jesus. They wanted to bring their kids to Jesus. And they had a really, really practical way of doing that, literally bringing their kids to Jesus so he could touch them. But for the mom and dads in this room, that's not a realistic option for us this morning, is it? Jesus currently isn't physically here. We can't just take him. We can't just take our kids to Jesus. However, we can still do this. We can still bring our kids to Jesus. And let me say to the parents in the room that this is your primary responsibility as a parent. And I mean that it's not my primary responsibility to bring your kids to Jesus, but it's actually, or, or Nicole's or the kids ministry or the student ministry, but we believe that it's primarily the parents' responsibility to do this. And so I just want to encourage you with this text by this good example of these parents bringing their children to Jesus to do everything you can to have a Christ-centered home, or as the Puritans used to say, that every home would be a little church. That's the goal that you should aim for, for every home, for your home to be a little church. So do everything you can to have a truth-centered home where the the teachings of the Bible are regularly taught and discussed. Do everything you can to have a worship-centered home where your kids can see that you yourself pursue and delight in God. Let them see that you delight in God and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do everything you can to have a community-centered home where your kids know that you love the church, where you're an active member in the church, where you make church a priority, Finally, do everything you can to have a mission-centered home. And do I mean evangelism to your neighbors and to the world? Sure, yes, of course. But what I mean by here is evangelism to your own kids. Do everything you can to fill your kids' minds with a clear and compelling presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To preach to them regularly the law of God so they know it. And, and the necessity of the new birth and the necessity of repentance and faith and the work of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Put those things before your kids because that's your responsibility as parents. They brought their kids to Jesus, and we're here to assist you in that, but it's your responsibility to take your kids and bring them to Jesus Christ. And notice it's not just to bring them here, but it's for you yourself to lead the way in that. Okay, the parents did a great thing. What do the disciples do in the text? Verse 13, the disciples rebuke them. Uh, this is the same word used by Jesus in Mark one twenty five when he rebukes the demonic spirit. So this is a super aggressive rebuke by the disciples. You see that? I mean, they are, I mean, they are rebuking these parents for taking their kids to Jesus. And the question we have to ask is, why? Why would these men ever rebuke parents who are who are taking their children to Jesus? passage doesn't say explicitly, but it's easy to assume that it's related to how um, the culture at that time viewed kids, where kids' value was not assumed in this culture. It had to be proven. Kids were seen as the lowest of the low. They, They couldn't work. They could contribute nothing to society. So from the disciples' perspective in this moment, children would be would be seen as a waste of time for Jesus. You are wasting Jesus' time with these insignificant kids. And not to sound too harsh, but it's not too hard to see their point, right? It's not too difficult to see where they're coming from. Think, if you were Jesus, or if you were um, a disciple of Jesus, and you knew you had three years to change the world, what would you focus on? I'm guessing... 
Um, you know, you might want to get all the popular, most important, most wealthy people and convince them to be on your team, right? So then you got influence and you got money. Or maybe you want to take the opposite route and go for like the super suffering people who are in the most desperate situation. Because remember, you got the power to heal them. So maybe you go to the super suffering, struggling people and you heal all the people you possibly can in three years. Or maybe you just focus on getting the crowds, right? And you go to all the big cities, get the biggest crowds you possibly can to get as many people you can to hear the message. All three of those sound like pretty good strategies, right? And so from the disciples' perspective, Jesus wasting his limited time on earth paying attention to these kids who have no problems to fix and nothing to offer the kingdom of God seems like it's worthy of a rebuke. And from a worldly perspective, that almost makes sense, does it not? I mean, these kids can't do nothing. You know, they can't give, they can't serve, they can't evangelize, they can't do nothing. So we need to focus on the big fish and, and, and stop paying attention to these kids. They didn't want to waste the Messiah's time with unimportant people, but we need to ask the question, is that how Jesus feels? Look at verse 14. So we ask, we ask the question, is that how Jesus feels? The answer is obviously no. Jesus has a different opinion here. What does he say in verse 14? When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus is said to be indignant, which is an intense anger that shows itself outwardly. In other words, Jesus was mad and everyone could tell. That's what indignant means, okay? Jesus was upset and everybody, you could, you could sense it. It wasn't like you had to read the, the room. Jesus was mad. Everybody could tell. First of all, this shows us Again, the deep emotional life of Jesus Christ. Jesus was no stoic. Sometimes we view Jesus in that way, that he just had its plain face, never had emotions, never was grieved, never was upset. But here in this passage, Jesus gets angry. Jesus was a real human being, just like me and you, apart from sin. And this is encouraging because this means Jesus can sympathize with you. As it says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So if you've been indignant about something in a righteous way, that means Jesus knows what it feels like. He can sympathize with you in that. And this also shows us that not all anger is sinful. Since we know, we can presuppose that Jesus never once sinned in thought, word, or deed, we can say, okay, so this indignation is not sinful because Jesus never sinned. Paul says that in Ephesians 4.26. He makes that point when he says, be angry and do not sin. But what does this teach us about Jesus, that he got righteously angry? He got righteously indignant about the situation. One commentator said, the object of a person's indignation reveals a great deal about that person. In other words, anger is a mirror. Think about anger in your life as a mirror where what you get angry about, what you got angry about this week reveals who you are and reveals what you care about. And reveals what you value. So I can think about things I got angry about. And, you know, that might say, I don't like it when people inconvenience me when they make a U-turn over here at Singleton Station when they're not supposed to. 
That makes me mad, okay? And that shows I'm selfish, right? Because I'm not worried about their safety in that moment. I'm just mad that I can't see and I'm trying to get home. You see how that anger doesn't really show the world as much. It's not a good window into the world, but instead it's a mirror reflecting who we are. And what did Jesus get angry about in this passage? The defense and the value of the helpless, the vulnerable, the powerless, the kids. Jesus gets angry about kids. And so what does he say? Verse 14, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So there's an allowance, let the children come to me. There's a command, do not hinder them. And there's a reason for the command, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Let's break these down. So in the allowance, so he's making this, you need to allow this. He says, let the children come to me. Clear message to the disciples, allow this to happen. This should be a clear message to us as a church as well, that we need to be a church that allows kids to come to Christ. We, we, we've got to be a church that loves children because through Jesus' indignation in this passage, we see that Jesus loves children. Jesus loves children, and so we've got to love kids as well. So every time you hear a little baby crying in service, you should leap for joy. That's a good thing. Let's have more babies crying in service. We can't as a church see kids as a distraction or a nuisance. That's what the disciples did. They saw kids as a distraction and a nuisance, and Jesus got indignant about it. But instead, we need to see kids as a blessing, kids as our future. We need to be a church that welcomes the the kids, that says, let the kids come to Christ so that every single kid who walks through our doors knows that they're safe and welcomed and valued and loved here. We've got to be a church to make sure that we aren't hindering kids in coming to Christ. Just a couple of applications here specifically about our church that I think about. Um, If you're a part of the kids ministry or maybe if you're not, you know we're trying to increase our security for kids. Okay, we want to protect our kids. And you see, I think this is a, a good application here. We don't want to hinder kids from coming to Christ. And one of the worst ways that could happen, hindering, is for kids to be harmed here at the church. And so I know sometimes it can be inconvenient to put badges on and do these things and, and two adult rules and, and all cameras and, and stuff like this. But we've got to be a church that protects kids because Jesus says, hey, do not hinder them. Another is, is our BG Sports Ministry. We've got a meeting right after service about this. We need some people. Okay, but I think about that ministry where we want to be a, a church just like Jesus that lets kids come to Christ, and we want kids to come to Christ. And so that's why I prayed for that ministry to be used in that way, that every single kid that will come into this building throughout the wintertime will know two things, the love of Christ and the love that this church has for them. They'll say, hey, you know what? This Jesus loves me, and I know that. And also, that church, Beach Grove, loves me. That's what we need to be as a church, I think, based on this passage where Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. And so we need to do all we can to have those two things happen, that we don't hinder kids and that we let them come to Christ and be a part of that. Okay, so the disciples were commanded to cease and desist. They're rebuking of the parents and hindering the children. And Jesus is crystal clear here, I believe. Unimportant kids get access to Jesus. Why? He gives the reason. 
He grounds the command in this reason. Notice it in the word for. You can read that as because. So he wants the children not to be hindered. They need to access to Jesus. Why? Because to such belongs the kingdom of God. Don't read this as uh, people like these kids own the kingdom, but instead think of it like uh, people like these kids have a rightful share in the kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to them. They, 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 it, it, they're inheritors of the kingdom. It, it's owned by them in a the sense that they're a part of it. And this phrase, um, for to such, shows us that this isn't just about kids but for those who are like kids, Jesus is talking about these humble, needy, insignificant kids, and then also any adult who shares these characteristics of being humble, needy, insignificant. In other words, Jesus is saying here that insignificant people are the ones who have a rightful share in my kingdom, not the people that the culture or the disciples would deem as important, worthy, or worth your time. No, insignificant people are worthy of my kingdom. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, which says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see this? How does it describe Christians in this passage? Um... Not powerful, not noble, but foolish, weak, low, despised, not. That's, that's how he describes believers. And we see further what he means in this next verse, Mark ten fifteen. Kids use as an example by Jesus. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus starts this verse by saying, truly I say to you, which means he's about to make an extremely strong and important pronouncement. He's about to pronounce something. And this truly I say to you is like Jesus putting it in all caps and putting it in bold. He's trying to emphasize his point. What does he say? Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is a big deal. If you don't receive the kingdom of God like Jesus is telling you to receive the kingdom of God, then you are not entering the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says kingdom of God, think eternal life with God forever and ever. So what Jesus is saying is unless you do this one thing that he's talking about in verse 15, you are not going to heaven. That's what he's saying, basically. So hopefully you see the stakes, and hopefully you're paying attention, and hopefully that if you checked out, maybe this is time to check back in, because we're talking about what you have to do to go to heaven. What do you have to do to enter? Receive like a child. Receive like a child. See that in the text? Jesus is not teaching us in this context to be innocent like a child or creative like a child, or playful 
like a child. That's not what's going on here. He tells us the meaning of the metaphor where he says, receive like a child. That's the metaphor. You need to be like a child and receive. This isn't about having the virtues of a child, but to be given something like a child is given something. To receive like a child receives. The word for child here um, signifies a very young child or even an infant. Notice in verse 16 that Jesus can take them into his arms. So don't think we're talking about a 12-year-old, right? We're talking about an infant, a baby, um, something he can, he can pick up. So I want you to think about a baby for a moment. Everybody picture a baby. A baby has no resume. I mean, what would be on that resume anyway? 8.7 DPD, diapers per day. Um, Babies don't have a resume. Uh, They have no ambition. They have no achievement. They have no skills. Besides eventually rolling over or something like that, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that impressive. And at the same time, a baby has great needs. A baby needs to be wiped and fed and protected. All a baby can do, think about a baby, is to rely on the love of another and be given help. All a baby can do is receive so what does it require to, what's required to receive and enter the kingdom of God according to verse 15? Being like that baby. To be a Christian means to rely on the love of another and to receive help. To be a Christian means to be given grace. And grace means the freely given, undeserved love of God. I want to be really clear here, brothers and sisters, we are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our good deeds. We are not saved by being good Christians. No, we are saved by grace and grace alone. That's what we see here. Salvation is nothing but the grace of God. And God's love is not earned or deserved or achieved. It's received. As a gift, God's love is freely given to you like you are a baby being given a bottle. That's what grace is. And isn't that what Ephesians 2 says, verses 8 through 9? It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Ask yourself this morning right now. Am I trying to make God love me by my own doing? Because Ephesians 2 says, and this is not your own doing. Ask yourself this morning, am I trying to work my way into heaven? Am I trying to save myself? And I want to be clear, these aren't just questions for unbelievers, But even true followers of Christ can fall into a work salvation mindset. Even real Christians can forget this stuff and think that we need to be grown-ups for Jesus. But church, we are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. Salvation is not achieved by successful grown-ups, but it's given to humble, needy kids. 
In Ephesians 2, we see it says, so that no one may boast. Do you see how, that, how grace eliminates boasting and it humbles us? It kind of puts us to the floor. If, if you're saved by grace alone, that means that you have absolutely nothing to brag about. It absolutely eliminates pride. You aren't a Christian because you're awesome. You're not a Christian because you're more spiritual. You're not a Christian because you're better than anyone else or you've achieved in some awesome way that other people can't achieve. No, you are simply a kid that received the free gift of God's love that's found in Jesus Christ. You received God's grace. Paul makes the same argument in Romans 4 where he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul's teaching here that Christianity is not work and earn. That's grown-up stuff. That's not Christianity. It's not work and earn. No, instead, it's believe and receive like you're a kid at Christmas. That's the gospel. Salvation, as Paul argues in Romans 4, is not a paycheck. Okay, he says, you know, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's Romans 4, 4. But salvation is not a paycheck. A paycheck is where you work and get what you deserve. At the end of your work week, when you get your paycheck, you don't say, oh, thank you so much for this gift of grace. Oh, how, how kind and loving of you to give me this after I worked 50 hours this week. No, you, you earned it. You, you deserve it. That's grown-up stuff. Grown-ups have jobs. But that's not what salvation is. Salvation is a gift where you do nothing to deserve it but are loved anyway. And receive the gift by faith, by believing. And that's what kids do. And that's how you enter heaven. It's the only way, as he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So ask yourself right now, do I have a paycheck relationship with God or a gift relationship with God? And this is for unbelievers and believers. You can be here as a believer and think and kind of slide into it. I have a paycheck relationship with God. I think if I start checking off the boxes and maybe I do need to go serve in BG basketball and then God will love me and I need to keep up all this work. So then, oh man, then, then I can maybe earn God's love. No, no, no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you receive it like a child. God's grace is given to you. So ask, am I trying to be a grown up with God or a kid with God? A grown-up comes to God with their hands full of reasons why they should be loved. A kid comes to God with empty hands of faith. And when you come to God with empty hands, he fills them with his grace. Last verse, verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So finally we see Jesus granting the request of the parents. The disciples' rebuke was itself rebuked. And Jesus receives these little babies into his arms so he can bless them and lay his hands on them. What an awesome picture, is it not? Do you see the tenderness of Jesus Christ? We have a gentle Savior who takes little helpless babies into his arms. 
And we can trust that Jesus is tender and gentle with anyone who will come to him in faith. Listen to this description. I love this of the tenderness of Christ in Matthew 12, 20, where it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So it's like a, a weak, bruised reed it's saying Christ won't break it. Or if you're just a smoldering fire, barely smoking, he's not going to put you out. He's gentle. He's meek. He's tender. So this morning I want to encourage you, if you feel weak or helpless or troubled or insignificant this morning, go to Jesus and he will receive you in his arms. Christ isn't looking for successful grown-ups who have it all together. Christ isn't looking for significant people. He's not looking for all-stars. He's looking for weak, needy, insignificant kids. And if you meet that standard, go to Christ today. He'll receive you. In this passage, you see the patience of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is not a busy and hurried Savior with more important things to do. He wasn't saying, hey, sorry, kids, I've got important things. I've got to go preach. I've got this Sermon on the Mount coming up. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't say, I've actually got to meet with the Pharisees. He's probably tired of the Pharisees by now. Um, you know, he's like, no, these kids come to me. I'm going to take them one by one by one. Christ is so filled with compassion that he takes time to stop and bless these kids. And isn't that good news? That in this room, I don't know how many of us are in here, but we all have different problems and problems we have, right? We have a lot of stuff going on in our lives. I don't know the half of what you're going through. But Jesus has the time for each one of us, and he'll receive each one of us into his arms. He took the time for these kids. Uh, this last Wednesday, um, my daughter um, had an ear infection, and uh, it was like 1 a.m., She's she's screaming. We find out later her eardrum bust from a from a ear infection. Um, but it was one a.m. And, and let me be clear, I do not like being woken up at one a.m. Did not enjoy it whatsoever. Uh, so I go in there and she's crying. Chelsea had been with her for a while, and so I grab her. And when I grabbed her, she just absolutely collapsed into my chest, just like a like just cuddled so hard, just completely and, and fell asleep on me and in that moment my heart was just filled with such compassion sure I didn't want to be up at 1 a.m. sure you know I wanted to go back to bed but when my child just collapsed into me and just was at peace in that moment it was like okay I, I'm ready to this we can do this all night if we need to and it and what sprang into my mind in that moment is if I can find that in my sinful broken heart and trust me I'm no you know perfect example in my sinful broken heart if that's there then how much more so in Christ Jesus where Jesus is so perfect in love and compassion and gentleness and tenderness and patience and goodness oh he's so much more my friends so what I want to encourage you to do based on this passage based on what we see about the character of Christ is go to Jesus and collapse into his arms He'll receive you. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to be some sort of spiritual grown-up full of significant achievement. No, go to this Savior today knowing that he is tender and passionate and patient and full of grace and mercy and trust in the promise that he blesses needy little insignificant kids who have done nothing to deserve it. 
If you don't know the Savior, I plead with you, go to Christ today, broken over your sins and believing in this promise that we see in John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What this verse teaches us is that if you believe in Jesus, you won't just be like a kid. No, you'll actually become God's kid. You'll be adopted by God and be his forever and ever. Christ will take you into his arms today and never let you go. Here's the bottom line, what I think the passage is about. Salvation is not achieved by successful spiritual grown-ups, but it's given to humble, needy kids. In other words, we're saved by grace and we're saved by grace alone. So right now, I'm asking are you trying to be a spiritual grown-up or are you receiving the grace of God like a kid because the kingdom belongs to the kids? Which one are you this morning? Father, we come before you. Not with a resume, not with a list of accomplishments, but we simply plead your blood. We plead for your grace. God, I pray... First of all, that you transform this church and, and just make us be a church that loves kids, knowing that you love kids. And God, I pray that we can be a church that leads kids to you and that we can be full of families who leads kids to you. God, give us the grace and the wisdom to do that. But God, I pray spiritually, individually for each one of us that we can be spiritual kids, completely reliant upon your grace and mercy. God, I pray that through this, these four verses that you can eliminate any false gospels in this room who think that they can earn their way to heaven or think that they have the spiritual resume to earn your love or think that they have to perform so that you accept them. God, I pray that you eliminate the false gospel from this church. And I pray that you give us a sight of the true gospel, of the grace found in Jesus Christ, the undeserved, freely given love of God. God, make us be that kind of church so filled with grace, so filled with humility, so filled with faith, brokenness over our sin. God, only you alone can make us into that. So in this time of response, I pray that you can continue to work on our hearts, all for your glory and your glory alone. In your name, Jesus, amen. If you'll stand up.